welcome to the False Neutral Podcast, episode 58. With me, as always, Eric and Garrett. Good morning, guys. Hey, how's morning. it going? And uh, it is a very early morning where you are, Garrett. It's what, a uh, little after 5 a.m.? It's 5 a.m., and people always said that this time existed, but I never wanted to verify for myself, and here I am. 5 a.m. really does exist. Last episode, we had some suggestions about what bike to buy from some of our listeners, and we're going to get to that next week because you have some news. Without letting the cat out of the bag, um, you've gotten into your buying and selling frenzy again. Yeah, yep. I I did make a purchase, but it's an interesting story. Not probably not an interesting purchase, but an interesting story. So, so did you we can did you see anyone's advice online before you made this purchase? No, I made a jump on one. Okay, and let's just say I might have some buyer's regret. (laughs) Okay, so we'll save that for next episode because. Today, the reason why Garrett had to wake up extra early is we have Steve Ledcham, who is from, I don't know England well enough to say exactly where you're from, Steve, but introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and where you are and what you're up to. My name's Steve, uh, as mentioned. Um, I work in a a small workshop in a place called Tring, uh, which is about 30 miles north of London about 800 feet above sea level, which doesn't sound awfully sort of high when you consider some of the places that I guess you guys have been to, but it makes it bloody cold. And so it's it, it's a nice place. It's very rural, surrounded by sheep and cows and fields and stuff, so it's quite nice. Uh, and I run a small company called JL Restorations. Um, JL is my son's initials. It just seemed the best thing I could come up with at the time when I was inventing a company. And uh, I've been professionally building bikes oh, I don't know, since like 2009. But I've been building bikes since I was 14 before that, and I'm now 54 years of age. So I've been pretty much building bikes for many years. It looks like you've been building bikes for a lot of years because some of these things that you work on are just absolutely magnificent. Um, pretty incredible machines. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, sort of, you mean the fact that they're old or rare or... All of the above. I mean, you've been working on two-strokes and four-strokes and... Japanese bikes and European bikes and looks like kind of everything in between from old to new. Uh, yeah, yeah. Also, American bikes as well. I've built um, Harley JDs and uh, WLAs and Indian Big Chief, Little Chief, Scouts. I've done all sorts of stuff in the past. Um, yeah. I've also got a, a, an XR racer in the workshop as well. Oh, really? Which is quite a nice thing. On... CafeRacer.net. I'd seen a lot of your work and your comments, and and I was familiar with you. But it was the the AJS Matchless Special that you worked on that that truly was. I I got to talk to this guy because I love that bike so much, and uh, I know that it was just holy hell t- <laughs> to work on. But the the final result is is so gorgeous, and just the fact that you kind of had to mix and match parts to get it together. It, it's a really, really impressive piece of work. There's a, the story about that bike is, um, before it came to me, there was a chap and his father. They decided to build a bike many, many years ago, and they got so far with it, and then they stopped. Uh, and then it sort of laid in a shed for about 20, 25 years. And um, the father's birthday was coming up. It was his 70th birthday. And uh, the son decided, well, let's build this thing for my dad. If, if it's going to 
go and do anything. If I'm going to do anything with this bike, we'll do it now. I'll build it from Dad's seventy. His Dad's seventy. And so I, I had a long conversation on the telephone with him, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, I, we sort of agreed that I could do it." And I asked him how how straight it was. He said, "No, no, it's pretty straight. And it's pretty original. It's 1936. If you've read the the Cafe Racer.net stuff, you'll know that it wasn't any of that at all. It was you know parts from every year you can imagine. The the frame had been sort of um, uh, let, let me just say scaffold poled into position to get. <laughs> When I knocked it, when I knocked it, when I started taking it apart and pulling the engine bolts out, the thing was just springing everywhere. You know, I just thought this is an absolute mess. And, and as, uh, the forks were, were were rotten through. It was just a mess of a bike. So it turned into a remanufacture more than anything else. And because it wasn't an, a, a, an original bike, I could pretty much do what I wanted. You know, I, I could I could say well, I wanted to keep it looking like a period special, like a, a like a calf racer sort of thing. Or, or, or as I've coined on, a, on another side, some sort of tea room racer because it's English, you know. But I don't think we had coffee in this country in sort of pre-Second World War, but it was probably pretty much all sort of weak tea, I would have guessed. But that was the idea, was to build something which was um, still had that sort of heritage of a, of a, of a pre-war bike, but and also in a race style. I could do what I wanted, really. I, you know, the idea was just to keep it low, keep it as light as possible, and uh, make sure that the engine... Well, had a little bit of yes, a, a little bit of a punch to it, right? but not too much that it would destroy the bike. Because those old bikes, that we have to remember that they are 1936. It's or, 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 or pre-war technology. They're not terribly robust. They'll keep on going and going and going. But as we know, revs kill cranks. So if you want to rev the thing, rev the nuts out of it, it will fall apart very, very quickly. So it was, it was just keeping the thing nicely balanced and uh, you know, vibration to a minimum and keep the whole thing as it's got to be really a, a lot more fun or interesting or creative to be able to do something that's a special that you can do one of one and and make it what you want rather than feel like you're constrained by doing a bolt by bolt correct restoration of something the way it came from the factory Absolutely. Um, I'm actually doing a, one of the bikes I'm actually working on right now is a GSR, uh, first year GSR in 1978. And the chap wants that exactly as it came from the factory. And I, I, as much as, you know, I quite like the guy, I hate the bike. It's <laughs> 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 just holding me into in, in, in a plane. So, but I'm, I am doing a few little things just to make it a little bit more mine, you know, but not, not changing it hugely. The paint will the paint is it's got to be exactly as it should be, and the nuts and bolts will be, you know, replated. But there's just one or two little things which I'll which I'll do just to um, take that sort of plainness that you get with the GS style. They're, they're quite a plain bike, you know. But yeah, you're right. It's it's um, following when you're following someone else's plan. It's 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 sort of enjoyable because there's there's the detail that you've got to get into, and you have to take absolutely every last thing apart. And this bike, I don't think, is running. Uh, I think he had the engine professionally rebuilt about 10 years ago. And before that, I don't think the bike had been in 20 years. So it's just been, again, in a garage, 20 years. A guy bought it new, and he just wanted, I don't know, maybe it's having a, a late midlife crisis or something. He wants to <laughs> go touring on this thing again, you know, one last sort of Ferrari again. But, uh, but anyway, that's, uh, yeah, they are. They're, they're, when, the, when the road maps down for you, then it's, it's pretty dreary. It's nice to, to, to uh, be a bit more creative. Do you uh, have a style of bike that you work on or build that you prefer? Uh, I know you've uh, looking at the at the gallery on your webpage. There's a lot of 
uh, X race bikes. Uh, there's a few sort of, as you say, cafe specials. There's the, the ugly Vincent, which is just God awful beautiful. It just cause it's so spot on period or, or for what, for my eyes, spot on period. I mean, is there a style that you like working on more or do you like the variety? Uh, well, that's a tough question, actually. I, I, my, my, when I look at race bikes, I mean, I, I go sort of all, all soft and gooey. That's me. I like race bikes, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I, I must admit, there are certain types of bikes that I can look at all day as well. There are certain road bikes I can look at all day. Uh, I like sort of the early sort of tube frame fuels, for example, and which, which every manufacturer is copying now. If you look at Yamaha and, and Kawasaki and whatever. KTM like especially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, a crossover street fighter, uh, off-road bike sort of look, you know? Mm-hmm. But no, they're, 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 you know, I mean, I, I did a JD, which is 1925. Again, I could sit and look at Holly JD. I could sit and look about all day. I just, not a race bike, it's a road bike. And, um, it all depends on the bike. Sometimes I just get, I, I guess what happens is I start off with a bike and I like it. And I just get to like it more and more. Thing with with road bikes, or when I start to build them, I think what happens is I get so involved in the building because I get into detail so much that they become a little bit of me as well. So I start to like them as well. So everything pretty grows. I don't think I've ever built a bike which I'd consider to be ugly. You know, let's put it that way. You know? Yeah. yeah. I know. I I can't find the picture right now, but you've uh, you've done a TZ750 or two. How's that to once you're finished, throw a leg over and maybe do a, a blast down the road on? 350 or, or 750. Or, 750. Oh, right. Okay. Wow. Uh, the story about that, that, that was quite a famous bike. And you, you may know it was actually Dave, ex Dave Potter who won the British Championship, um, formed itself on the British uh, Superbike Championship on that bike in 1980. It's also a bit of a mausoleum bike as well because it, it was the same bike that he, got, he actually got crashed on and died. Um, and it's still owned by the same family. It was the family that spotted him still owned the bike. So I, you know, I, I, I rebuilt that for them. So a lot of me went into that. So when it was finished and um, the guy who used to sponsor Dave was a guy called Ted Broad. Uh, Ted's still alive. He's 92 years of age. And we took it round to him and he sort of, just so he could have a look at it. And he says, it, it looks like it's just come off the track, you know, <laughs> and uh, in, back in 1981, which was fantastic. And they said, look, we've got it booked into a meeting. Would you like to parade it for us? And I, I was like, well, you know, didn't have to ask me again, sort of thing. So right. I, I, I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've done, I've done quite a lot of track work, and and then they told me I was in a, a past masters class, and uh, so we got to this, got to Mallory Park. We uh, sat on, I was sitting on the grid, and in front of me was Trevor Nation. So one side was a guy called Teppy Lantavori, another guy uh, um, uh, was Carl Fogarty, Jamie Whitten, you name it, all. Champions and stuff, you know, world, you know, Carl Fogsy, five time world champion, Christian Saron, you name it, all sorts of other words, Rotary Nortons were there. And um, I remember sort of sitting on the grid thinking, I just shouldn't really be here. This is, this is, this is, I was, I was sort of embarrassed for, for myself, but I was embarrassed for the, for the guys. But once we got rolling, I can tell you now, that CZ750 out dragged the works Rotary Norton. That's how good it was. Uh, Steve Spray was on the inside, and I cracked it around the outside, and opened, opened the throttle, put the, put the front wheel in the air, and off it went. And we went down the main straight into a into Gerald's corner, and I'd gone into the corner about 20 meters ahead of him, and which was absolutely fantastic, you know. And then I had about six or seven laps. I had a little dice with Carl Fogarty. I did my usual stuff, stuffed up a corner, and almost dropped the bike, but uh, he got away. <laughs> so, but which which is pretty terrifying because it's not my bike; it's worth an awful lot of money. Um, but it was good fun. It's very it, 
two strokes, unless you've ridden a big, a really big, well-tuned uh, two-stroke, it's hard to describe what they're like. They are absolute torque monsters. They don't feel anything like a four-stroke, but they just pull really. A TZ will drive like a like you could go to the shop side, you know, and get your shop in and put it in your rucksack and pootle on back to uh, to your house. But once you get a handful past about eight thousand RPM, eight and a half thousand RPM, it's just completely different. It's it just they just turn animal like, you know, they really really do, and they pull so strong. And I want to pull really really nicely around to about ten and a half to a, you can you can run higher than that, but you really want to be even at about ten and just use the torque to pull you through gears rather than just wrap them up to them. Uh, they're, they're fantastic things. They really, really are. Unfortunately, now they're so expensive. They're prohibitively expensive to buy nowadays. You know? yeah. um, but I remember when they were... I, uh, I, I had an, uh, well, for you, an RZ500, RD500, RZ500 uh, street bike, which in the U.S., they're, they never sold, so I had to import it and stuff. And so, yes, I'm familiar. V4, uh, that torque, you hit about 7,000 RPM, it gets on the pipe, and the run to 10, 10, 5, uh, it's still... It's been 15, 17 years since I rode that bike, and I can still picture everything in my head as, as clear as yesterday. So I understand. And you also, uh, you had a, a TR750? Yeah, yeah. Was that yeah, was well, that an X-Sheen bike? No, 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 no. Well, sort of it. Sort, sort of it. That particular bike was built out of a, a lot of bits and pieces. The basis of the bike was a crash race bike, and the people, who, the guy who had it... Uh, the intention was it was always going to rebuild it after it been raised, but it just never got around to it. And I had some very, very early CB750 stuff, some uh, K1969. I was going to build another CR750. And the chaps, and, and this chap got to hear about it, and, I thought, and he thought, well, maybe we can do a swap. But, you know, he wants to build an original street bike where I was going to chop this around and turn it into a race bike. And uh, we, we, did, we did a deal. The, the, the TR was a, was a real mess. The frame is, is a replica frame. But it's replica period, you know, it's made in the 70s. It's instead of being metric tube, it's imperial tube. It's probably T45, and the cord of the bronze welding is really, really dark bronze, which, and those types of rods disappeared in this country by around about the early, early to mid 80s because of the, they, they give up a lot of noxious fumes and the old regulations and stuff. They're just banned. So that pretty much dates the frames to probably late 70s, early 80s. But the things like um, the engine, um, part of the engine I had. Part of the engine came with the bike. Uh, the crank, for example, is X sheen. It's a lightweight sheen, a sheen crank from 1975, 76. Uh, it's got a dry clutch. So it's a bit of a mixture of all sorts. But, it's been, but when I, it took me three years, though, to collect all the bits and pieces purely because I wanted a really nice period piece. I didn't want to say, oh, you know, put Kawasaki forks on it and the wheels look a bit like Kawasaki. So it's got some, I wanted it absolutely as it should be and right. So it's got Morris Magnesium wheels and it's got um, the forks on it are XR14 um, uh, works Suzuki wheels off an RG500 Mark 1 issue around about 76. So, so, so the brakes, etc. Et so it's, a, it's, it's not, is it replica? Yeah, it is because it's not, it didn't come from the factory like that. But there's so much of it that's correct and original Suzuki. It's, it's, it sort of crosses the line a little bit in some ways, but it's a, it's a, it's a nice, nice thing. It's something it's, that a privateer may have put it together in 76 exactly. or 77. And natural fact, that's a philosophy that I tend to stick with when I build bikes. If, like, for example, we spoke about that Egley uh, Vincent earlier on. Uh, that particular bike, um, when we were thinking about what it should look like, um, we just drew a, I drew a line and said, look, let's put nothing on that bike that wasn't available before 1972 or 73. Most of the, I mean, that particular, that particular frame is... Uh, 
curious on some of these motorcycles are just exceptionally rare and i imagine that finding parts for them uh some parts must be really difficult what happens when you come across one of these motors and it needs a crankshaft uh or some other critical engine part and you just can't find it is that something that you produce yourself or you have uh made or something like that something i like myself um I mean, for example, if, if it's uh, pistons, for example, what I'll do is I'll find a blank and then machine the blank up. And, yeah. Uh, that's quite easy to do. Um, oh, the, yeah, it's a piece of cake. Yeah. <laughs> but what, I mean, what I mean is, is it, it's it, with, the, with the limited site workshop I have, I can do that. You know, right. can't do is do things like cylindrical, cylindrical, grind cylinders. There you go. <laughs> I can't do um, uh, that type of stuff. So that goes out. But if I need a crankshaft, there's a few companies um, in this country who will make crankshafts. So if it's a, you know, a billet crankshaft that I need for, I don't know, maybe a Triumph or a Northern, there's a guy I can go to. You have a lot one for uh, the Japanese multi, uh, which uh, is pretty rare because you can always usually find stuff for jack bikes, although it's getting increasingly difficult. I can, yeah, so I, I can make stuff. If I want rods, con rods, I can go to Carrillo uh, over in, I think it's in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I want, if I want some Japanese type pistons, you know, I can go to JE or Weissco or Weissco or whatever. Um, but there's a, there's a few places now. There's Meteor Pistons in Italy who do some fantastic stuff. Uh, we also have companies in this country called like Arrows and Amiga who make yeah. just beautiful stuff, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, for example, Conrad's and stuff. I mean, they're, they're titanium Conrad's are absolutely beautiful. Uh, the prices are really ugly, unfortunately, but they're um, very, very expensive. For example, a titanium rod for a um, short stroke Max Norton's a thousand pounds, just one, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, yeah, we, it, it, it just very much depends. I've actually found that, you know, the more common the bike, the, the, the more parts are available. So, for example, if I wanted to, if I'm building a 1930s Harley, or even an, actually a, 90, a teens Harley, there are two there are two organisations that go to on your side of the water where I can get everything I want. Just yeah. get crankshaft, yeah. frame lugs. If a frame lug is smashed, I can you know 
unswept the frame and, and then put it all back together again and, you know, and, and get all the lugs and stuff. Absolutely fantastic. Um, British bikes the same. The, 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 the biggest problem with British bikes is that they are so copied that a lot of the parts uh, are now being manufactured in places like China or in India and the quality is really weird. It's, sometimes it's fantastic and sometimes it's just really So you've got to be so careful. Yeah, yeah uh, that makes sense. Yeah, so, so, but some of it's really good. You know, you know, I was expecting a nightmare product to turn up um, to fit on an AJS, not the AJS we were talking about early on. And I paid £170 for this thing. It was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. You know, yeah. So it, it, it's a bit of a lottery. That's the problem. I, I've bought some Chinese made crankshafts, or actually, they might have been Indian. And sometimes they're really, really good. Sometimes the metal didn't get hardened properly and they're a little bit soft. So when you go to, I always check the true before I install them in a motor. And if it needs a small adjustment, sometimes you just tap it with a hammer and it moves, you know, 30 thousandths out of your your measurement that you needed it to be in. And sometimes they're really good where it actually takes quite a bit of effort to get them to. To move, two-stroke cranks in. Yeah, like RZ three hundred and fifty cranks. Oh uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah we have we have the same problem, you know. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, even Japanese cranks as well. I mean, we're talking about TR seven hundred and fifty. I could, if I lifted up a TR seven hundred and fifty crank and then knocked it with a small hammer, the thing will ring. It will make a ringing sound. You get a yeah. standard GT seven hundred and fifty crank or, or water kettle, you know, a kettle crank, you know. Uh, the set of, well, which is the road version of the TR 750, and you, you hit that with the same hammer, and it just goes good. It's like hitting a lump of lead. It's completely yeah. different. Metal's completely different, and it's the same with um, RD and TZ stuff. I mean, uh, or TR, TD, uh, TZ, all the race stuff through. Super hard cranks, great material. Road cranks, they're just not the same thing at all. Yeah, no, they're the same thing at all. So it's. It depends what you what you're actually doing, and as we know with PZs, with any two-stroke, you know, red kill them, red kill cracks. You know, right. uh, there's a lot more movements, a lot more. Um, uh, you know, your squish values are, 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 are completely different, and the way in which you measure squish on a two-stroke compared to a four-stroke, especially on a plane bearing crank, because there's so much give in the in the leading rollers, you know, mm-hmm. in the piston, and also in the uh, in the big end, you know, and that flex in the crank as well. So you never run really tight squishes. They run playing there in Norton Crank um, in a Manx engine, I've run 24,000 squish, 24, 25,000 squish. On the Japanese engine, you know, if it's a really, really good engine, I might run half a millimetre. Yeah. Most of the time, you know, 0.8.9, just to keep it safe, because there's just so much movement in the crank. Yeah. Those pistons are getting really into it with the cylinder otherwise, you know. Right. Well, this is a, a business for you. Uh, I know some of your bikes are your own, but a lot of times you're doing this for a customer. Uh, what is it like trying to make a living doing this? Are customers normally well bankrolled? Are they, you know, people come to you and they're like, wow, my budget's tight. I don't want this. I need this. And can you do this for cheap? And Or do they kind of just say, no, Steve, you, you take it, you do it. And then while you're doing it, do you have somebody hovering over you or do they pretty much just say, you know, leave it to you and let you be the expert? All of that, actually. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's not, uh, again, it's a very, it's a very big question. Uh, what I, what I can, can say is if anyone's thinking about, you know, packing in their job as a city lawyer and going to motorcycle restoration as a way of making money, 
they're making a big mistake. It's very, very, very hard to make money. It, it, you may be able to do it in, in, in the States, I guess, you know, like a niche market and, uh, and, 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 you know, get yourself into some sort of a set where there's, there's guys with plenty of money. But in this country, it's not quite like that. Most of the clients, I will say, though, are usually uh, well-funded. They tend to be, um, uh, especially if, if you're building things like TZ750s for them or Manx Nortons. They're, they're, they're expensive bikes and they, they, they cost. I guess if you look at it this way, too, if, you, if, you, if you're going to spend £10,000 on a bike and you bought the bike for 25 grand, then it's going to be worth 35 grand at the end of it, then it's not such a big deal. You know, you're basically getting your money back and you have yourself. But if you're restoring something like, a, I don't know, a, a CB750, single over account from the 70s and you've bought it with three grand and to you know bear in mind that to paint a cb750 tank costs the same as it does to, to, to paint a max norton tank you get or to, or, to, or to do all the basics is all pretty much the same sort of cost you might throw ten thousand pounds at your honda buying it for four you've got a fourteen thousand pound bike which in actual fact will only sell for ten so it'll it all depends on the individuals and, and, and how they see themselves and, and uh one of the reasons why I don't build an awful lot of bikes for myself, you said that there are some bikes that I've done for myself, but most of them are actually behind bikes, is that trying to take a bike, restore it, and sell it at a profit is it's almost impossible to do. It, especially the way I build a bike, because I get into the real detail of a motorcycle and uh, you know, change the nuts and bolts, they'll go stainless, they'll all be counter drilled and hollowed out, made super light, and all that sort of stuff. All that takes a lot of time. And by the time you add all of the uh, all that time into the equation, and, uh, and then you try to build something for that, it just, you can't make any money. I'm lucky that my workshop is on the place where I live. I mean, the house is, house here, big workshop at the end of the garden sort of thing. I mean, if I was having to do it on a commercial basis and well, rent a big commercial property to do this, I couldn't do it. It would be, it would be it would just, it would be, it'd be too expensive. Um, and it wouldn't pay for it, You mentioned that, um, you didn't really start doing this full time till 2009. Uh, what were you doing before that? And then what was the impetus to switch over and do this full time for you? Um, you know, how do you get from one thing to other? Because I had such a big change in career. Uh, I, got, uh, I, was, I was working in a shipyard, you know, the sort of stuff that guys do in shipyards, I guess, you know, working on ships. And, but I did uh, what was called a technical apprenticeship. So I did things like, uh, did a lot of mechanical engineering, um, naval architecture, all that sort of stuff, a lot of design work. Was, some of the guys thought I was quite clever. I, in the end, that, that sort, of, sort of paid me back, in, in, obviously, in later years. And, and this, uh, but in the meantime, I moved from doing the electrical work into a thing called planning, or in other words, um, uh, sequencing of work, scheduling of work, which, you know, which starts off quite simple. But I got better and better and better at it. And um, basically, I then started to become, I became a manager, and then I became head of discipline, and then I started working with big companies. And I'd always been sort of building the bikes in the background, full-time job, 60 hours, and then 20 hours in the garage in the weekend, or 30 hours in the garage in the weekend, that's what I was doing. And I just thought, uh, it's either I carry on doing the whole London bit and you know, kill and, and die at 60, or I, carry, or, or I change my life a little bit and, and slow it down a little bit. And also, um, I... I recently had a my first son in uh, 2007 as well and that was all sort of came together at the same sort of time so when i wanted to do something different i ended up becoming a father and things changed for me so i wanted and also working from home is great because i see my son all the time you know i'm not out of the house for 12 and 13 and 14 hours a day and then you know it's just seen him for you know 20 minutes at the end of the day and as he gets older now he's 10 you know, almost, uh, you know, you know, kids like a 10, they just sit in front of their uh, PCs, don't they, and play games and whatever. And, you know, 
I'd be lucky to see him for some 20 minutes whilst he wasn't killing something on PS4 or something. You know? <laughs> a whole, it's a whole bunch of things all came together. Are your sons as interested in motorcycling as you are? Or I should say motorcycles? No. Not at all. Yeah. Is, is that a good thing? Or a yeah. bad thing? My brother, he said to me one time, I want to get a bike. just thought, right, okay. And I thought, I thought about his car history. And every car he'd ever had, he'd smashed up. Yeah. Um, he's, kind of, he's, got, he's not going to last very long. So I think a bit like that with my son as well. I think he... Let's put him in something which um, which which wraps around him. He's not going to get hurt too, too badly. Yeah, what, I what, had the same conversation with somebody yesterday about my son. I showed him a picture of one of my bikes that my son was sitting on it, and they asked, "Is your son going to ride on the back with that with you?" And I said, first, absolutely not. He'll never ride on the back of a bike with me, just because." I feel comfortable taking my life into my own hands when I ride, but I'm not going to put my son on the back. But also, I probably won't ever advocate him being a road bike rider just because of the danger of it. Now, if that's something he wants to do later on in his life, that's fine, but it it wouldn't be my first choice. I think the traffic can... I'm the same age as you are, Steve, and, and the condition of the roads and traffic when we started riding as teenagers is a whole lot different than it is today. I am not sure I would get into motorcycles if I were 17 years old today, given the number of huge SUVs with people, you know, looking at their cell phones and texting while they're driving and just the sheer amount of traffic on the roads. I read somewhere that there is 50% more cars per mile than in 1980 at least in the United States, uh, it may be worse in England. You can tell. it. It's not like when I was 17. No, absolutely not. And I, I, I don't know the states that well, but all the places I've, there are places I've been to, obviously, but on the east side, New York, etc., Connecticut, and, and there are there are nice sort of what I think are quite quiet places. There. The thing with England is, or Great Britain, is it's just busy everywhere. You know, it, you've got London, and then everything is slowly but surely just conurbating into this one great big mass heading north. You know, it's, you know, the, the, the countryside is slowly but surely disappearing. It, it's it's really really difficult. And the roads we have are smaller and they're narrower, and, um, and everything can do 130 mile an hour. You go and buy a sort of you know a Suzuki thousand cc car, it, you know, it's 125 miles an hour. You know, Every, everything's so fast nowadays. You know? and um, unfortunately, people's skills are developed to it. Um, the last time I rode a bike regularly on the road uh, was 2004, and uh, I remember. And the reason I stopped riding regularly on the road was this: I was going around a corner, and I wasn't going. I was going fast. The roads were slippy. It was the fourth of um, January, so it was, it was cold. And there was a guy doing a U-turn uh, around the blind corner, and he was right across the side of the road. And I thought, well, I've hit him. I'm probably going to break my back. You know, my legs are going to go under the handlebars. I'm going to break the femurs. I'm going to land. Then I'm going to have to land somewhere, you know, in a pile. I'm probably on the opposite carriageway with something coming the opposite way. So I slid the bike. I put the bike down, and the guy, um, just absolutely blase as you like, you know, said I was speeding, lied to the police, and I thought there's just no mobility in this anymore. Yeah, it's just ridiculous, you know. So that was the last time I I I, I had a. It was actually the last time I had a road bike legal, but it was the last time I used a bike, what I'd, I'd say, regularly. Um, and that sort of changed my mind. And this, especially as he couldn't even admit that he was wrong. And he, you know, he could have killed somebody. He could have killed me. And yeah. he just didn't admit it. You know, I just thought, 
you know, in, in my heart, I could never have done that. As a person, I said, no, no, it's my fault. You know, it's this guy didn't do anything wrong at all. But no, he was absolutely more than happy to lie to the police about what he did and what he was doing. You know. Is there a, uh, a bike or a project that you haven't done yet that you want to find a way how to do, whether that's um, some kind of period special from, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, whether it's a specific race bike you want to restore or work on, uh, or is it something you just want to like, let me come up with my own creation and amalgamation of a couple different eras and, and put something together. That's my own vision. Um, do you know, I've, I've worked on so many different things. I think, what, I think the type of bikes I tend to get are the sort of bikes that nobody else wants to do. Uh, because they're, they're they're a real mix of stuff, and they're, they're you know they're, they're really in poor condition or whatever. <sighs> is there one particular idea? No, I don't think there is. I think that I, that they're all in the end that you know they're, 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 they're just pistons and valves and wheels and suspension and frames and stuff. You know they uh, there's not one particular bike that uh, uh, in terms of working on. Not really. In terms of riding, what I, one thing I would love to do before I die is ride a MotoGP bike in Hino in East. Ride a MotoGP bike. <laughs> I want to know what 220 horsepower feels like. You know, the, you know, the most powerful bike I've probably ever sat on. Um, well, no, not most powerful. The quickest bike I've ever sat on was um, a VF1000R. The bike was 1985, and it's a, it's many many years ago. That particular bike was. Um, we did a lot of work too. We didn't do much with the engine, but we, you know, remade all the exhaust and uh, remade the plan of genuine and we got the collection box and we, we cut all the baffles out. We took the rev limiter off it and we retimed it a little bit, new bit, a few bits and pieces. And that thing was making 142 horsepower at the back end after we changed in 1986 and 87. And we took it to uh, uh, Myra, which is um, a, a basically a ministry test road, and we pulled 187 miles an hour in 1987. And I have to say, even today, having, having ridden one or two relatively modern bikes, nothing has been as, as fast as that. And I don't mean in terms of top speed, but just how it got there. It just, you know, got to, got to 100 miles, got to, got to 120, and we expected to start slowing, we just didn't. It just carried on going and going and going and going and going. I'm just watching the rev counter go up, and the, it, it was just incredible. I've never, never ridden a bike remotely like that. And, and also, even though it was a big four-stroke engine, big B4000, it, it felt like a two-stroke. <laughs> it really, really felt like yeah. a two-stroke. It delivered its tour. Completely different. That, 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 I'd like to, but I'd like to, that was, that was interesting, but I'd like to, I'd just love to have a go on a MotoGP bike and just see what that feels like, you know. Even one of the actually Motor 3 bikes, I think they look fantastic as well. Nice and light, still 150 miles an hour. You know, in actual fact, I think the Motor 3 bike is probably what we should be riding on the road, to be honest. You know, as, as because they're ultra light, flickable, fantastic brakes. You know, everything you want out of a sports bike. You know, no, there isn't one particular bike that. Um, there's probably famous bikes, I guess. You know, like Benelli's and stuff, like the Benelli Fours and that sort of stuff. I'd like to work on those, but you know, if they turn up, they turn up. You know, but uh, no, there isn't one particular. I don't know. Sure. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up there. Steve, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, uh, Skyping in with us so we can learn more about what you do. I will uh, continue to follow your exploits on CafeRacer.net and some of the other forums that you very graciously post progress on. Oh, that's not all. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff I don't post. There's actually, I've got clients who won't allow me to post anything. Yeah. 
they don't forget to very um, very, very wary of having their assets posted online. I, I will tell you. The owner of the business I work for has a collection of about 150 cars, and he's extremely private about letting people know about all the things that he has. Absolutely. Garrett, thanks for waking up at 5 a.m. to join us here on our little transatlantic <laughs> call. And uh, yeah. we will see you all next week, and we'll find out a little bit more about what Garrett's up to in his workshop. Yeah. Uh, Steve, thanks again, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.